Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome one and all to episode 128 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this of course is the cancelled Nintendo game episode of the SLS Cast because... Turns out there was a Super Mario game that was going to be coming, uh, elements of which were included in Super Mario Galaxy and the original Pikmin game. The name of the game? Super Mario 128. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, and with that little bit of Mario mania, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from California, where he just won the Sony Sunny Award, it is... Tim, what is the Sony Sunny Award? I've not heard of it. Well, actually, what it is is that uh, Sony comes from the Latin word for sonus, which means sound. However, it's also a uh, kind of a Japanese take on the word sunny. You know, like a like you know, sunny boy, right? Um, and it was chosen because you could say it in a, virtually the same way in almost any language. And they actually called the first transistor radios the Sunny. Oh. But then because they started getting more popular, um, Morita and Ibuka adopted it for the company name. Matt, and I must ask, Sony. how do you know so much information? <laughs> how do you know? Maybe all I, this? too, work for Sony. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. I don't. I'm just kidding. I'm teasing. Only Tim works for Sony. But 128. Why 128? Why? Where were they going to name it that? They didn't name it that. Or why? What are you talking about? Oh, the. Oh, you're, you're jumping back to the Nintendo. Yeah, thing? yeah, yeah. I'm kind of yeah. Oh, uh, because each leap in the programming for the RAM and stuff. So you had the 8-bit Nintendo, mm-hmm. and then you had the 16-bit Super Nintendo, Ooh. and then you had the. 64-bit, they skipped the 32-bit era and then jumped straight to the Nintendo 64. So then, because they were going into the next era for the memory and everything, it would have been 128. And so, Super Mario 64, right? You know. Sorry, I was a, I was a Sega and PlayStation guy. So we just had Sega and <laughs> PS and then PS2. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that... Um, you, the whole reason that Sony exists in the video game market with the PlayStation is all thanks to Nintendo. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, because they, um, they, they were the yeah a Nintendo and Atari. No, 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 no. Literally because of Nintendo. Oh, really? Wasn't one of yes. those things where the head of Nintendo like bumped into this one down-on-his-luck chap and said, One day... One day you will do big things, and it turns out he is the head of PlayStation. He developed PlayStation. It's a much more interesting story than that. So basically, Nintendo and Sony had teamed up to try and make an optical drive for the Super Nintendo. And they were trying to work out how they could get that to to integrate properly and everything. Sony had come up with the technology to do that. And in doing so, Nintendo had inadvertently given them additional rights to their catalog and stuff that they didn't want Sony to have because Nintendo is, uh, despite its family friendliness and how awesome they are uh, and remembered from their 
fan base as, as gamers, as kids, they were extremely predatory. And so they were at a consumer expo in Tokyo, I believe it was, and they were supposed to announce the formal partnership. And Nintendo decided that uh, they didn't want to partner with Sony uh, because they didn't want to have to give up more creative control than need be. So instead they went to, it was either the real people or the 3DO people, whatever, one of those terrible systems that had come out, you know, like the 3DO or whatever. Um, and they got a much better licensing deal with them and then put all of the stuff on them to make the systems and everything. Uh, and then... Nintendo decided to keep the cartridge format because it greatly reduced loading times. And instead of just privately talking to Sony about this and, and, and you know, working it out behind the scenes, which would have been bad enough, but at least it's behind the scenes. No, 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 no. They publicly kind of shun Sony and then say, oh, no, we made this deal with Panasonic because we like Panasonic. Fuck Sony. And so now Sony is just like, they're about to walk away. They're like, well, we're kind of shit out of luck now. And the president of the division who had worked out this deal with Nintendo was so fucking pissed off. He said, fuck that. We're going to make a fucking video game system. And we're going to use the shit that we've been working on this whole fucking time with Nintendo. And thus the PlayStation was born. Since you're on a roll, what was the very first PlayStation game? Could not even begin to tell. <laughs> oh, yes. I won! I beat him at his game. Tell me the fucking name of the game. Oh, I have What's no idea. I, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> I thought you did. No, no. <laughs> You're like, I've beaten him at his game. Yeah, if I, if I knew it, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have asked you. I would have... Oh, oh, my bad. My bad. <laughs> we don't need another hero. We just need to survive beyond the Thunderdome. <laughs> you had that South Park singing, like the, the, the uh, what's his name, Randy Marsh voice. Oh, yeah, I do, a pretty, I do a pretty kick-ass version of Freedom Isn't Free. Thank you very much. Let's hear it. Okay. <clears throat> Freedom isn't free. There's a hefty fucking fee. Freedom calls the buck do you remember when those towers fail? <laughs> Do you remember? Yeah. Oh. We don't need another hero. Fuck off, Tina Turner. Jesus Christ. Damn you she and your did. sexy she fucked legs off and all the way lips. to Germany. Huh? She fucked off all the way to Germany. She Oh, is that where she is now? Is she in Deutschland? Yeah, she's like a German citizen now. No, really. Really, really. So uh, from Thunderdome to Germany. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so I did move. Um, it was an experience, let me tell you. I've decided I'm going to pay people to move from now on. Really? I'm was it that bad? bad? I'm, just, I'm just old, and I'm fat, and I'm tired, and I've moved like 30 fucking four times in my life. I'm j I don't want to do it anymore. Did you have like friends come over and help you move? or One. Rob? No. Oh, really? That bastard? Yeah. My friend Kristen. Yeah, Rob. Rob. I, I love Rob. And uh, and we are definitely, you know, best friends and everything like that. But Rob is really weird. Everybody has their idiosyncrasies, right? That That's what people love. That's why, you know, your friends and everything through thick and thin. But his 
idiosyncrasy is moving. He won't help anybody move because he would never ask anyone to help him move. He neither expects, demands, nor asks anyone to ever help him move so that he in turn will never, ever, ever, ever have to help somebody move. So it's weird. It makes sense. I mean, the logic is sound, but it is weird still. Uh, I had one friend, uh, Kristen. I don't think she was working when you used to work there at the old PJs. But, uh, yeah, I was just talking about how I was going to be moving in a few days. And she's like, oh, well, do you need some help? I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> she's like, well, yeah, I'll come and help you. So, yeah, so she came over. And was she the one lugging the refrigerator by, nah, by herself? She was, just, she, was there for a few, she, was, she was there for like two or three hours. And Good. basically she was helping uh, stack all the boxes uh, that we had staged in the former living room and stacking them up so that I could load them on the truck. And she was doing that so she was really kick-ass so Kristen, if you're out there listening thank you very much please come get your boxes because she's moving <laughs> she and her boyfriend are moving in together and um my wife was like oh well here you can just have all of our boxes so now we have a pile of fucking boxes in the garage and Kristen needs to come get them attracting all the all the mice and the snakes and the spiders <laughs> no nothing like that we don't need another hero. Okay, that's going to be the last time I do it until I do it 20 more times whenever we actually talk <laughs> about Thunderdome. Indeed. <laughs> so how was your week, sir? I understand somebody somebody was a birthday boy yesterday. I know. I had a, I had a birthday yesterday. So I guess officially for the show recording, normally we record on Mondays. Today is Tuesday the 19th of May. And we we did that because he had special birthday plans. So happy belated birthday via recording time, even though I already, you know, talked to you on your birthday and everything. But, yeah. What'd you do? Well, there was this great uh, donkey show I really wanted to go to. <laughs> so I flew the family out here, and we all went to the donkey show in Tijuana. Living the clerk's three dream, are Your clerk's two dream, are you? Yeah. By donkey, if you meant, if if you mean brisket, yes, I definitely I put a lot of brisket in my mouth. I put a lot of donkey show in my mouth. <laughs> um, but no, uh, really, since I we both had to work on Monday, we went to dinner, but we were able to spend the day Sunday uh, going all over town. She made me like this cool little map, so we spent the day going all over L.A. and doing these little hikes and going to these really cool nature trails where. All these places were like in Silver Lake in the Echo Park area, and it's kind of nice because it's much—it's very much like the hipster area. So they kind of have to keep the area a little not swanky, but a little you know decent, I guess. So you have these cool nature trails that overlook the downtown area. So it's really neat. It's what they call uh, urban hiking is when you can actually see buildings and the freeway. And the smog, where where the smog is actually coming so from. So it's called urban hiking. Instead of just walking downtown? Well, no. I mean, there's a park over by Dodger Stadium. Like Elysium Park or something. And you actually go up hills. Like, you're on a hill. If you're on a hill, I guess that classifies as a hike. And you go up an incline. I think that counts. Fair enough. Fair enough. I guess the people in San Francisco are a little put out. But, you know, whatever. Oh, they don't. They don't hike in San Francisco. Their whole their whole damn damn fucking city is is a hike. Yeah, well, it doesn't count. Uphills. 
You have to have you have to at least have one mile of flat continuous land. <laughs> and having been to their, having landed at their airport, they definitely don't have that. <laughs> does their does their runway even have an incline? No, no, their runway is literally out in the bay. So you look like you're about to just crash land on the fucking water, but it's actually just the runway across the bay. It's ridiculous. You you cannot see the land at all. You're looking out the window. There's nothing but water anywhere you're looking. And then all, but you touch down on the runway, just out in the bay, and yeah, it's insane. It's like in was it Peru or Brazil where whenever you have to, there's like a, a runway, a little tiny runway that your little tiny biplane has to go over this hill and immediately take a nosedive down to actually make it onto the runway. Do you know what I'm talking about? No? Maybe not? It, it's just beyond Thunderdome. You'll find it there. Over in Where, Germany. Coincidentally, coincidentally, they don't need another hero. I mean, neither do we, but they don't, for sure. <laughs> oh, God. We need to get to the news, dude. Yes. You ready? <laughs> Here we go, folks. It is the news. First up from me, I've got a pair of stories here regarding people getting roles in movies. First up from blogs.indywire.com, which is the playlist via Kevin Jagernauf or Jagernauf, well, whatever. <sighs> Anne Hathaway to star in Godzilla meets Lost in Translation monster movie Colossal. Okay, this is how you pitch a movie. It's like Godzilla meets Lost in Translation. Yeah. Yep, it sounds ridiculous, but you have our attention. And now, at an art house genre director pairing up with an A-list star, and we're very curious indeed. I must say, I do like the way Mr. Yaganoff writes. THR reports that Anne Hathaway will star in Colosso with Nacho Vigolondo uh, of Time Crimes, Open Windows, and Extraterrestrial. Uh, Nacho is going to be writing and directing. The story will follow Gloria, who decides to head back home after life in New York City, where she has just lost her job and her fiancé hasn't panned out. But when she hears the news of a giant lizard laying waste Tokyo, Gloria realizes she's connected to it somehow via the power of her mind. What do you... Th uh, yeah, I'll, I'll ask you here in a minute. Next up, though, from Variety.com, via Justin Kroll. Eddie Redmayne officially in talks for Harry Potter spinoff Fantastic Beasts. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Eddie Redmayne has been offered the role of Newt Scamander, or Scamander, depending on how they're going to say that, in Warner Brothers' Harry Potter spinoff, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, according to sources. As Variety first reported, Redmayne was the frontrunner for the role and was intrigued but wanted a finished script before committing. Insiders say that now the script has been delivered, he is very happy with what he has read. J.K. Rowling is making her screenwriting debut on the trilogy, Warner Brothers 
had no comment. And for those of you unfamiliar, set in New York roughly seven decades before Harry Potter's saga starts, Fantastic Beast is based on the Hogwarts textbook of the same name and follows the adventures of its author Newt Scamander. Scamander is described as a magic zoologist, which in the Harry Potter realm is a person who studies magical creatures. What do you think, Tim? Anything to say, especially about the colossal casting? So, is it Godzilla? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's what I want to know. Is it Godzilla or is it not? I don't know. I get the feeling. Did you ever see the not so great Nicolas Cage movie? Which, which and one? I realized that there's. Yeah, I know. There, there's. A, this was an early in his career. Um, bitten or something. What, oh, uh, Night of the Vampire. Whatever. It's where he thinks he's turning into a vampire. No, can't can't say I have. Okay, I'm just starting to wonder if maybe it's that kind of thing where it's more or less happening in her head. Then it would actually be really happening. But who knows? Who knows? Alrighty, well, I'm going to do uh, two pieces of news as well to start this off. Uh, first one pertaining to Dennis Hopper, the next one pertaining to Orson Welles. Both of them are not related. Two actors who passed away, uh, both of them are equally famous in their own right, I guess. <laughs> They're both gluttonous in one way. One was gluttonous with food, <laughs> the other one was with cocaine. So it could actually could be either or, to be honest. Uh, first off, it's from uh, DangerousMinds.net. This little article here. Dennis Hopper drunk and stoned with six sticks of dynamite. What could possibly go wrong? And this is what it says, that in Texas, after screening Out of the Blue, Hopper arranged to have the audience driven by a fleet of school buses to a racetrack on the outskirts of Houston. The Big H Speedway. Hopper and the buses arrived at the Speedway just as the races were ending, and a voice was announcing over the public address system, stick around, folks, and watch a famous Hollywood film personality perform the Russian Dynamite Death Chair Act. That's right, folks. He'll sit in a chair with six sticks of dynamite and light the fuse. Was famous Hollywood personality Dennis Hopper about to go out with a bang? Hopper apparently learned the stunt when he was a kid after seeing it performed in a traveling roadshow. If you place the dynamite pointing outwards, the explosion creates a vacuum in the middle, and the person performing the stunt is, if all goes according to plan, unharmed. After bullshitting for a while with a crowd and his friends, a drunken stoned Hopper climbed into the death chair and lit the dynamite. A Rice News correspondent described the scene, quote, Dennis Hopper, at one with a shockwave, was thrown headlong in a halo of fire. For a single timeless instant, he looked like Wild E. Coyote, frazzled and splayed by his own pettered. Then billowing smoke hid the scene. We all rushed forward, past the police, into the expanding cloud of smoke, excited, apprehensive, and no less expectant than we had been before the explosion. Were we looking for Hopper or pieces we could take home as souvenirs? Later, Hopper would say blowing himself up was one of the craziest things he has ever done, and that it was weeks before he could hear again, though none of that mattered. 
He had been through the thunder, the light, and the heat, and he was still in one piece. And when Dennis Hopper staggered out of that cloud of smoke, his eyes were glazed with the thrill of victory in spin-out. End all quotes. And there's actually a video here. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, it's entitled Dynamite Death Chair Act. But it's also a part of this article here from DangerousMinds.net. It's interesting. It's not going to add anything new to what we already think of Dennis Hopper. He was one crazy-ass motherfucker, for sure. Next up, Orson Welles. Before he passed away, he was still working on his final film, The Other Side of the Wind. And for many years, for 30-some-odd years, the movie has just been pretty much collecting dust. Well, according to, quote, and this is from a Collider article here, help finish Orson Welles' final film, The Other Side of the Wind, written by Matt Goldberg, and it says that following Welles' death, there were three decades of legal battles over the film that wasn't finished, and in 2014, the rights finally landed in the hands of producers Philip Jan Riesma, Frank Marshall, and Jens Kothner Call, and they want to finish what Welles started. An Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign has begun to help complete the movie, as the campaigners write, what if Mark Twain lost a manuscript, or if Mozart lost his sheet music for a final sonata, or a lost book of poems by Walt Whitman was discovered, hidden away in a dusty attic? This movie can help us better understand Wells's cinematic legacy, and moreover, the simple act of completing it through crowdfunding will make film history. The Indiegogo page goes in depth about the production's history and the importance of completing the movie. And like pretty much all crowdfunding campaigns, there are rewards depending on how much you donate. And if you donate at the top level of $50,000, you're going to get something really special. You will see Wells' scrapbook, where he kept newspaper clippings, all of his films going back to the 1930s. And it goes on from there, but you can go to his Indiegogo campaign and check it out if any of you guys are interested. It's very interesting. A lot of well-known, respected actors, and especially filmmakers, directors, like Wes Anderson, are, are backing this campaign because what Wells would say publicly is that this was going to be his best film he ever made. So, Matt, what do you think? Is this a good thing? Is it, Or is this like, oh, he never finished it? It never got finished because he passed away. Should we just let it be? Or, like what they said, is this actually something that we owe to cinematic history? I would have to say that I would need to... I would need to know more truly how close to completion the project was before he passed away. Not what they think it was. Like, I mean, you would need to know... Well, he finished shooting. People... Finished shooting isn't done. I mean, if you if you think about the fact that various cuts of movies exist, you know, studio cuts, director's cuts, um, that, you know, are, are they just like, oh, here's his actual cut of the movie and it just needs to be cleaned up with some post-production sound and stuff like that? Um, or, you know, oh, look, they're just missing. It looks like he got like 90% of the way through and we just need some filler stuff here that he had been working on. But here it's really it's really done. We're just plugging in a few holes. Or is it, oh, look at all this film that he shot and we're just going to cut it and make it the way we think he thought he wanted to make it. Well, 
he finished shooting the film, but you also have his assistants, the people that worked really close with him on the film. Uh, Bogdanovich was one of them. He's a well-known, respected director now, and he was the one that really was, is pushing to get this finished. So I, you have a lot of the the a number of the creative people that were working on the movie with Orson Welles. On top of that, you have his notes, his notebook, uh, his outline. You have his thoughts. You have, you, I mean, you have all this stuff to do or, or to. Uh, well, to I go think off in of. that case, then I think in that case, um, it, with the people who are there who were there with him, then I think it's, I think it's got a pretty good chance of being good. Yeah. Um, And on top of it, this was the movie starred John Huston. So we also get another, hopefully stellar performance from him as well. We don't need another hero. I'm just going to go ahead and close out my news here. So this way we can talk about four movies instead of three, plus its impact on whatever. And, We'll just kind of go from there. Anyway, HollywoodReporter.com via Clifford Coonan. Avengers Age of Ultron subtitles leave Chinese baffled. Or in Chinese, I don't know. I'm just kidding. Uh, Joss Whedon's Avengers Age of Ultron has just opened in the world's second biggest film market, but the film's Chinese subtitles have already caused irritation among some of the country's moviegoers. At one point, Captain America says in the film, I'm home, which was translated as, I'm good, Chinese webisons have pointed out. At another point, a line about having to wait too long becomes, I am very old, in Chinese. Mostly, the problem is that the translations in Age of Ultron are too literal. For example, when Captain America gives some advice by saying, you get hurt, hurt him back, you get killed, walk it off. It comes across in Chinese as, run fast if someone tries to kill you. In another scene, Iron Man tries to rally the troops to fight to the, to fight to the death with the line, we may not make it out of this, but for some reason this is translated in Chinese as, let's back off now. There are other translations that have been mentioned online or on social media as being way off. According to the news website Nanfang, the phrase son of a bitch becomes my old familiar partner. (laughs) Writing on his Weibo social media account, filmgoer Wo Zhao Senxia, whose handle translates as I am called three tooth, (laughs) said he was shocked. By the translation, quote, the woman in front of me almost cried and said, let's go home. I can't put up with it, end quote, he wrote in a post, which has been retweeted thousands of times. In China, exhibitors typically hire a translator. Some commentators quip that the translation for Ultron appears to have been done by Google Translate. According to Baidu, the translator is veteran Liu Deong, who did The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies, Avatar, and Titanic. He, he was tutor to Jia Xian, who translated Guardians of the Galaxy last year and caused strong viewer reactions also because of his literalism. The movie was known in Chinese as Interplanetary Unusual Attacking Team. According to some reports, cinemas in China have corrected the translation already. So what do you think, Tim? Should we leave translation to 
the countries themselves to get it right? I I think we should. I mean, surely in this global day and age, the studios have, you know, one trusted person in every market to say, okay, make sure this gets translated right. Well, we should. <laughs> we should have that trusted person, but... I sense a butt coming. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I... I don't know because it, like it, all all that stuff is kind of you know it's just like outsourced out like you you hire a you go through a third party and I think as opposed to outsourcing in outsourcing in it's like how you want your your Chinese food right out outsourcing <laughs> in. Um, but I, I don't I don't think Disney's going to make that mistake again. All right, sir. Bring us home. What do you got? From Crack.com, six reasons modern movie CGI looks surprisingly crappy. And this is written by David Christopher Bell. And this was published uh, May 12th of this year. And just, you know, so you know, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of these articles where people overly express their opinion to be funny. So I apologize if it sounds kind of douchey. But this guy does make a lot of good points. And the reason why I chose this is because I was really looking forward to seeing the the uh, the first kind of like pictures from Jurassic Park. And like Matt, I don't like to see a lot of stuff about a movie that I'm really excited uh, for the release date. And I'm actually kind of re- I was ex- actually really excited for Jurassic Park. So once the movie still started coming in, some of the promotional material I'll see, you know, I saw like on TV or whatever, I realized that there's. Like, the CGI looked like blatant CGI, which, if you remember from the first three Jurassic Park movies, they only used CGI when they absolutely needed to, but most of the movie was was animatronics, puppets, you know, a lot of the stuff was done in what you would call, I guess, like, real life. You know, everything was real, you know, something was actually on the screen. So once I started seeing the the stills, I was like, oh my god, what what are they trying to go for with this movie? Is it going to be like the, how they made the other ones? Because that's what I was hoping. And so I decided to watch the trailer. And I watched the trailer, and that's when some of my hopes and dreams for the movie uh, of wanting a really good, fun, exciting film kind of got crushed. And this guy expands on it a little bit more why why a lot of people think the upcoming Jurassic Park or Jurassic World movie looks fake and again this is all based off the trailers none of us no even the guy who wrote this has not seen the movie we're just solely going off the trailer and he's also comparing a couple other movies as well and he starts off the article with saying why do a bunch of us find the photorealistic carnage of the Genesis, the new Terminator movie, in Jurassic World trailers so woefully unappealing? The answer isn't dumb nostalgia, well, not just dumb nostalgia, but rather that the best CGI in the world might as well be the Scorpion King if the filmmakers fail to realize a handful of fundamental things about special effects, such as... The lack of visual restraint makes gravity act like a cartoon. There might be a time when CGI finally traverses the uncanny valley and becomes indistinguishable from the real world. Only none of that will matter as long as filmmakers continue to apply physics with a spongy fist. Even Viggo Mortensen, 
said that as Lord of the Rings progressed, Peter Jackson lost more and more restraint. So yeah, that's what he said about Lord of the Rings. But as you remember from like The Hobbit, the, the scene when Legolas is running up the crumbling bridge or something like that, like the bridge is falling, he's kind of hopping along. He's just kind of floating around. He's breaking every law of physics possible. And it's obvious it's CGI. It's just bad. And that's what he was mentioning there. And he continues, It's hard to blame someone for wanting to make something look as awesome as they imagine. But sometimes, having that sky's the limit freedom means knowing when to keep it grounded. It's advice they needed to heed in Terminator Genesis when the T-100 slices off his own arm and then uses it as a javelin. What seems like fun, little CGI flourish, ends up opening a world of impossible character motivation and baffling physics. Why would a thoughtless killing machine waste precious, murderous seconds dramatically lopping off his own spike and flipping it into the air like a futuristic baton twirler? How did it even manage to perfectly spin in its amputated dagger arm like that? Is it wise for liquid metal robot to willingly javelin his body parts? The director probably didn't ask any of these questions because he just wanted this shot to look cool. It's the exact same problem later on in the trailer, again for Terminator Genesis, when the T-800 goes tumbling into traffic. Uh, they're on the Golden Gate Bridge, and he's kind of hopping along there and hits a car. And I'm just going to jump to one more of his pointers here. And again, you guys can go back and uh, read all six if you're interested. Uh, but I'm just going to read his fifth one. Color grading makes everything look like a fantasy. And this one is very interesting because I've been noticing a lot in TV shows. You'll see TV shows like uh, House of Cards. They use a lot of yellows. They use a lot of blues. And the reason why, this, uh, this guy will explain in a second. Movies like Transformers and The Hunger Games are so aggressively teal and orange that they look like big-budget adaptations of a Spencer Gifts blacklight poster. As we've explained before, the reason for this is that these two colors, teal and orange, are on opposite sides of the color wheel, and as such, are immediately pleasing to the human eye. Since human skin best resembles orange more than anything else on that color wheel, color graders had an easy starting point to completely ruin every film they work on. And he has examples here from Jurassic Park with uh, looking at, look at the raptors. He uh, messed with color. He was comparing a scene from Jurassic Park to a scene from the trailer of Jurassic World, and he swaps the color grading so you can see what he is talking about, you know, the blues. So, like, basically, you look at something that's shot in daylight, and it looks cloudy, it looks muddled, it looks, it doesn't look like sunshine. But he takes away that blue, and it's brighter, colors are more rich, It's it looks more real, and not necessarily more pleasing to the eye, but it just looks real, more authentic, more natural. The environment, that is. And then he goes on to say, and this is going to be the end of it right here, For the life of my family, I can't fucking figure out why anyone would want to watch a movie that's filtered to look like someone refusing to remove their Ray-Bans. The reason you don't see this in Jurassic Park or other 90s movies is because it hadn't even been invented yet. 
color grading was made popular by the Coen brothers after CGI became the go-to special effect when they decided to use color grading to make O Brother Where Art Thou look like an old sepia tone photograph. But their point was to detract realism from the finished product, whereas Jurassic Park was, originally, about creating larger-than-life creatures in a real-world setting. This is why the effects in The Avengers and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes look so darn good in comparison. Along with dumping shit-tons of money into the CGI, those movies didn't wash anything over with color grading to make it look like middle goddamn Earth. It's the actual world, with actual Earth tones. Compare that to Godzilla, which looks beautiful, but appears to take place in a gritty Pleasantville covered in volcano ash. And he has pictures for that as well. And he goes on to talk about the use of special effects and how, for the original Jurassic Park, they only use special effects, like I mentioned before, CGI, when they absolutely needed to. And even then, the entire movie wasn't based around that one effect. Uh, and so he makes all these other great points, and I highly recommend you guys checking it out. Again, it's from Cracked.com. Six Reasons Modern Movie CGI Looks Surprisingly Crappy, written by David Christopher Bell. And just to echo the color grading and color satura- saturation issue, um, Man of Steel suffered from that greatly as well. Oh, sure. Yeah. And that guy uh, made mean, that video where he lightened the color up a lot. Yeah, yeah, where they actually pulled the color back, and you could actually see what it would what it would have looked like uh, under relatively normal conditions. So, yeah, it's amazing. And I want to say it's something like of all the minutes in Jurassic Park of um, special effects, it's like two and a half minutes of CGI. So if you think about all the dinosaur action that you saw, all of the chasing, everything, because that was the marriage of everything. That was the marriage of the clay maquettes. That was the marriage of the actual audio animatronics. It was the marriage of the CGI. It was the marriage of the puppeteering. Um, Yeah, it's amazing stuff. So, cool. Anywho, we'll get to talk about practical effects versus special effects a lot now um, in our, for our movies this week. So do we want to talk about the legacy before the movies or after the movies, Tim? Uh, let's do it afterwards, because I'm sure it'll kind of bleed into while, you know, while we're talking about the movie anyway. Indeed, indeed. All right. Well, in that case, we're going to get right to it, folks. Here it is. The movies! <laughs> Naturally, since we're talking all about Mad Max, we're doing all the Mad Max movies. So we've got Mad Max, Mad Max 2, uh, also known as The Road Warrior, also known as Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. And then, of course, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and finally, Mad Max Fury Road. So I guess, as most things are wont to do, it's best to start at the beginning. (laughs) And don't forget the upcoming Mad Max, Mad Max. (laughs) <laughs> Indeed. All right. So first up, 1979's Australian dystopian action film, Mad Max. Directed by George Miller, produced by Byron Kennedy, and starring Mel Gibson. 
this was not his first role, but it was definitely one of his earliest roles. This is the not-too-distant dystopian future. They, they're not really clear in this film just exactly what has transpired, but you definitely get the idea that um, what has happened is basically kind of confined to the bigger cities and the suburbs, and the outer-lying areas, and in this particular instance, the Australian outback, more or less, uh, has been left pretty much spared from from the bulk of everything that's going on. Uh, here, the biggest problem that they have are biker gangs who take advantage of the lapse in law and order to, you know, do the bad things that biker gangs are known for. Now, they actually have the um, main force patrol, which is... Um, the government's last kind of stand in terms of law enforcement. And that's their job. They run around and track down bad guys and, you know, do their, do their thing. So cue the Knight Rider, who has killed an MFP officer and stolen his vehicle and now is driving and, uh, you know, going crazy and they caused a pursuit and wrecking people and everything. And then, of course, in comes Max. Yeah. Good old Max Rokotansky. Killer introduction, I might add. Yeah, I mean... What this movie lacks in substance, it makes up for in style and in score. I will say that for sure going in. Uh, but at any rate, uh, they do a great intro- uh, introduction for Max's char- for, for Mel Gibson's character of Max, uh, who ultimately is able to apprehend slash kill <laughs> the Knight Rider and irritates the living piss out of his biker gang buddies who then go after him. And now it's a kind of cat and mouse chase game. Uh, who can survive? Uh, can Max get out of the business before the business kills him or any of his loved ones or whatever? Um, I did kind of enjoy the, just kind of the generic, not, not generic, just kind of the genuine human interest pieces that they scatter throughout this. Like he's a family man and his wife slash girlfriend or, uh, you know, significant other, I, I they never really 100% make it clear, but you can assume, I guess, his wife. They introduce her by having him come home and the saxophone is playing. And, of course, it's one of those perfectly scored saxophone intros that kind of tells someone coming home to what they hope is their, you know, romantic life. And then they pan inside, and there's a chick playing the saxophone. <laughs> so you're like, okay. <clears throat> but, um, and, and there are definitely interesting characters. The bad guy, Toe Cutter, is really interesting. Max, I gotta say, for me, he's kind of flat. I don't know. 
But to get to the heart of the movie, this is definitely what is referred to as a slow burn. Um, it, it definitely takes a while to get going, but then when the going gets there, good Lord, look out. You can see even this early on that George Miller simply has a penchant for understanding the flow of action in a scene. And he knows when to draw it out. He knows when to collapse it. He also knows when music and score is your friend or your enemy. Now, it's, it's a little shakier in this production versus the remaining films that we're going to be covering. But there and again, this is very early on in his career. And this is the first Mad Max film. All that, all things considered, though, the movie really is slow. And even though the last 15 minutes um, are kind of the heart and soul for me, at least, of the entire Mad Max franchise, without the last 15 minutes of this film, you would never have had anything else. It's not enough to say that the entire movie is, is awesome. The rest of the action scenes, specifically the car chases and stuff like that, that are interspersed throughout the, throughout the movie, really are good. But it's just not enough, given the way that the story was trying to play out, to generate enough interest that the, that the movie can kind of run on its own inertia. So... At the end of the day, I, I got to give this one uh, 2.75. It's better than okay, but I can't really quite say that I really liked it. And don't get me wrong. I do understand that, the, that it's 1979. This is not the first time that I've seen this movie. But most people that you would talk to will generally say that the movie is pretty slow. But man, the action is good. And especially the last 15 minutes. Um, especially the, the scene that basically gave us the entire Saw franchise. Which I will get to after we finish up. So 2.75 for me on Mad Max. What do you say, Tim? Alright, so there's a lot of history behind this movie. So bear with me for a little while. This is... A movie of firsts. This movie spawned so many other movies. It's amazing. And yes, I mean, the movie is definitely slow. But to me, there was a lot of stuff to appreciate. Especially, I went out and bought the the Blu-ray. They have a pretty good commentary. Not with George Miller, but some of the production team. uh, The cinematographer, the producer. And uh, they have a couple of some interviews with like Mel Gibson. And the lady who plays his love interest, Joanne Samuel. And... God, just hearing him talk about, like, reflect on the movie and talk about the making of it, it's it's amazing that they were able to pull it off and it actually become a cult success, even a critical success in Australia. Because back in the day, back in the 70s, Australia was still trying to find its way in the movie business. There really wasn't, there, there was no Hollywood of Australia. <laughs> you know, there was no uh, Peter Jackson, though he is... In New Zealand, I mean, there was no Boz Luhrmann at the time, who he he's Australian. So George Miller was kind of 
the the spearhead for the, of the movie industry of the the big not necessarily big budget but a internationally respected film industry in in Australia because Mad Max it wasn't an Australian movie it was a movie for everyone that's why you notice that the movie isn't tied down to Australia uh, other than the accents but uh, they never mention that they're in, they're in Australia because really the vast landscape can be anywhere and that's why they shot the movie and that's why it, it also reached across the borders, went beyond borders, and it became a favorite in the U.S. and Canada and whatnot. But to start off, George Miller was not a filmmaker. He is not a filmmaker at this time. He had, This is his very first movie. This is also uh, the producer Byron's first movie as well. And believe it or not, George Miller was a doctor. He is Dr. George Miller. Actually, I believe people on the set would call him Dr. Miller. And why, you might ask, did he go off and make movies about cars, vengeance, kind of like an old western set on the road? Well, it was because during that time he witnessed the car culture, the motorcycle culture, the driving fast culture. So when he was working in this particular hospital, he would see people coming in with all these cuts, bruises, broken arms, broken legs, these crazy wounds. And that spawned his idea of making Mad Max. Aha! And that's why, you know, that's kind of why he uh, decided to be a, a filmmaker. So yeah, he was a doctor. And also Mel Gibson accidentally got the role in fact the actor who plays uh who played the character goose who's max rockatansky's good friend he was actually up for the role of max but like how any classic story of an actor falling into a role and him actually becoming a breakout star that's kind of like what happened with harrison ford in a way mel gibson was driving his friend to the audition and While he was sitting there at the audition, he got noticed because he had, Mel Gibson had all these bumps, cuts, and bruises on his face. He was really tore up because I think he he said something about, he got into a fight at a bar with this polo team, and they really, the production team, thought he had a look. You know, they really needed ugly people to, to like, either be bikers or pedestrians or, you know, like somebody just in the movie to look like they got roughed up. They said, well, come back in a couple weeks, let's see what you look like when your face kind of clears up a bit. Well, he came back a couple weeks later. They had no idea who he was because his, you know, cuts and bruises died down, you know, went away a little bit. And they thought, wow, you look rugged. You look good for this role. Let's have you read this, read these lines, you know, memorize this monologue and let's see how you do. So he went off. He had a little while, you know, he half-assedly, you know, memorized this monologue and he performed it. And he, you know, he, he knocked it out of the park for the most part because he was a trained actor. Everybody in this movie, a number of them were trained actors. Not just trained actors, but trained Shakespearean actors as well. Which I think is why you get a lot of various different types of characters in this movie, especially from the Bite Gang. And so that is how Mel Gibson got the part of Max Rokitansky, by accident. And it's the same thing with Joanne Samuel, his love interest, because the woman who was going to play his love interest... I think it was just like the day before principal photography or a few days before principal photography. She was on the on the back of a motorcycle and it crashed and she ended up breaking her uh, one or both of her legs. And so Joanne Samuel just happened to get the part. So it's just all these accidents, all these perfect accidents 
kind of happened. And if shit didn't go down for some of these people or for this production, we wouldn't have had Mad Max. We wouldn't have the ha- we would not have had the type of movie that we got. So a great thing about Mad Max, it was the first of the post-apocalyptic films. You know, it really showed the decay and the damage of the world. You know, it was amongst a harsh and barren landscape. That's where the movie was based on. Just barren, harsh, and rugged. With all these ugly, vengeful, bloody, brutal, graphic people that are that will do anything to just fuck you up and take what you have. So again, it defined the look of the 80s as well with its style. And also kind of like the color grading as well. There are a lot of music videos from the 80s took liberties with the look of Mad Max and incorporated it into their music videos. So it spawned a whole look in the whole genre of a post-apocalyptic film. And also, I was mentioning all the firsts that this movie started, I guess. You have the, the lawless characters... I mean, this was really a gritty revenge, uh, or, or not necessarily, it wasn't the first revenge movie, but it was, it tied all these different genres and types of different films together because technically, what you'll notice in all of the Mad Max movies, even the new one, that it's basically a western, but with cars. You know, the, he's, he's a loner, the loner just walking, you know, walking along the, man, uh, the landscape, and he gets sucked into other people's problems. They killed his dog. <laughs> they took his horse away, which in this case, they took his car away. You know, which that's in the other Mad Max, in, uh, Mad Max 2. But again, it all ties into the Western theme. And what's also very interesting in the movie is that you never see the violence at all. I mean, everything that is graphic is insinuated. For example, when Goose is in the hospital, he gets burned practically to death. The only thing you see is a split second for a, a quick cut, you see Goose's hand fall out, and it's disgusting. But it could have been a lot worse. And you see Max's reaction when he pulls down the covers and looks at Goose's face, but you never see it. At the end of the movie, when his wife and kid dies, you never see it happen. It's all insinuated. You just see the little kid's ball rolling, you know, going down the road in his shoe, kind of falling into frame. You just never seen any of the gory graphic stuff happen on screen. And yet it was more effective than if you actually did see the movie. Because like any good thriller or any good horror movie, like the first Alien movie, it was scary because you didn't see the alien hardly at all. Your brain, your imagination starts compensating for what you don't see. So you so you kind of have this imagination of not knowing what to expect. And you're just going off what the character is seeing based on their reactions. And it's fascinating, and I just loved how all of these movies, but especially this one, because this one in some ways is a little bit more graphic, without actually seeing it. And it also, you know, it could have also been a budget thing as well, because this movie was made literally on a shoestring budget. Another appealing aspect of this movie is how hard and raw the film is. Not necessarily the material or the violence, but how the film was made. You have the hard and raw camera work, the editing as well. For example, for the camera work, whenever you have these car chase scenes, you have this low camera angles 
from the like from like the ground up where literally the cameraman was hanging out of a door or hanging off a platform and he was just maybe literally his face was three inches from the pavement shooting some of these scenes and when he's down on the uh, uh, close to the road you know three inches off the ground there are cars and motorcycles zooming zipping past him again maybe another three four five inches away and so they were doing all these death defying maneuvers and whatnot with their bodies and really taking these crazy risks just to get these really cool shots and again this was even more stuff that a lot of people didn't see because they got very unique angles that action movies really didn't incorporate whatsoever and also with which added to the the hard and roughness was uh, the montage of quick cuts where continuity doesn't really add up a good example is when the one character has a chain and um, uh, Max Rokitansky's wife or girlfriend or whatever is driving away. He has the chain and you just see it quickly. He swings the chain up, chain up and the chain wraps uh, you know, onto the metal uh, top of the car, the luggage rack of the car. The car drives away and the guy's hand rips off. Well, that technically doesn't make any sense. There is just something invigorating about it. The movie was ju- just kind of kept moving forward and didn't take time to or didn't want to take the time to kind of like meddle around with something like continuity when it came to a guy's hand getting ripped off the stuntmen in the movie were not even professional stuntmen they got motorcycle gangs to come in and fill in for some of the bigger motorcycle sequences uh they even the hell's angels were part of the movie as well and also with the uh with the action you never saw the action, or you hardly ever saw the action from afar, unless they were doing a crazy car crash where you had this wide-angle uh, look at the crash. The camera was mainly in the action. The action was happening around you. Like I said, with the camera on the ground, with a low-angle uh, shot looking at uh, Max's car, or Toe Cutter's car, or uh, Toe Cutter's motorcycle, I mean. You know, all that stuff, just, just pay attention next time you watch, and you'll see how close everything looks. And you're actually experiencing the movie other than actually sitting back and watching the movie. And this kind of attests to what Matt was saying about the final act of the film. Because not only is all this crazy shit happening, does Mad Max actually go actually go mad, but you're thrown into the action. And it's just fascinating. It's great. It's something new. I mean, this movie refueled action movies in America. That's why it was so popular out here. Because at the time, a lot of people, a lot of younger people, felt that a lot of the movies that were coming out at the time were too pretentious. And so this was kind of the right movie for the right time because it was action, it was raw, it was hard, it was gritty, and it was just plain fun. Yes, like what Matt was saying, this movie does have its flaws, but by God, there is so much to appreciate. And I recommend it, though I don't, I'm not giving it the perfect score either. There's just so much great history behind it. I give this one a 3.75 out of 5. And if you can get the Blu-ray you know, a little bit cheap, though the quality isn't that great. It does have some really cool features on it if you're interested in exploring more of the history of Mad Max. So 3.75 out of 5 for me. Mad Max 2, Road Warrior, as it was released here, due to um, Warner Brothers' fears that people may not necessarily want to see a Mad Max film despite the fact that the movie did so well. I don't understand this decision at all. Uh, But internationally known as Mad Max 2, or even Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior, 
1981. So basically, we're now picking up after the devastation that is the ending of Mad Max. Now, um, I, for my part, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna try to do my best to avoid major spoilers for all of these films, but some things just aren't gonna be avoidable. So, hopefully, you've seen these films or know enough about them that you're not gonna be bothered by it. Or you could be like my wife who forgets everything and. You know, she's like she's like Dory when it comes to movies and TV. Yeah, um, she's she's like, wow, that was a great episode. And then you could show her the exact same episode. Wow, that was a great episode. So you know, maybe you're like that. So we pick up um, many. I don't know if it's many years, but you definitely get the impression that years have passed, and now it has been officially denoted that um, nuclear war has occurred and has struck. Now petroleum is a, um, it is truly liquid gold. Entire roving caravans and bands of people and bandits, um, loners, that's what you're after. Everybody's after uh, gas and then water and then food. And then I suppose scrounging for parts and scavenging or what have you. So we have Mad Max now, as he is known, and he's still got his supercharged V8 Pursuit Special that he's picked up from the end of the first movie. And he's off doing his own thing. Um, He ends up being pursued by gang members, and eventually he, through a series of circumstances, chiefly... uh, in, involved with the gyro captain played by Bruce Spence, who is going to be integral to the remainder <laughs> of the two initial uh, of the three initial films. Um, he is led on an adventure to both revive his own humanity as well as give hope to the hopeless in such a desolate time and place as this. As far as I'm concerned, of the initial three movies, this is definitely the best. And I think you'll find that most people will agree that this is, the general consensus is that this is the best of the original three films. I will even go so far to say personally that... Um, this is my actual favorite of all four movies. But for now, we're sticking with Mad Max 2. This one here has definitely got... You You can see the increased budget. You can see that the, that everyone has definitely stepped up their game in terms of cinematography, in terms of directing. Um, and... The acting and the characters that are done, with the exception of um, the feral kid, that uh, that's that that kind of seemed gimmick gimmicky to me. But again, this is 1981, so I'm gonna forgo that because that kind of became this was kind of one of those movies that that clearly defined the narrator um, injecting himself into the story in a unique way, as kind of like a staple. Of the genre. So I'm willing to forgive it, but it did kind of irk me a little bit. 
The action here is on fucking point. The only thing that really bothered me about this film is not humongous, but Wes. Okay, Wes is this crazy ass um, homosexual, and I bring that up only because um, this was one of the first times that in a mainstream film of this nature, um, and definitely in my life at that time of, you know, of seeing movies and everything that such blatant homoeroticism was displayed. And that's, that's a big thing, um, that, that is just ridiculously tame by today's standards. Um, but just the implications back then were huge. That was a that was a really big step in cinema, and something that is not, I personally I think noted as much as it should be. But this guy, he's just a crazy red-headed mohawked freak, and he kind of exemplifies all of the things that make the crazy post-apocalyptic. Um, What's the word that I'm a stereotype? The stereotype that you see. I mean, if you even look, look at the and again, as far as legacy is concerned, look to things like Far Cry series or um, Borderlands series and things of that nature. And almost all of these crazy fucking characters that you see are straight out of a Mad Max film. I mean, the impact that it has had is just completely ridiculous across the board uh, and is continuing to influence things even today. So, again, really cool. But it's just too... I, I, felt, I felt even then it bothered me, it shocked me, which I think it was designed to do. But looking back on it now, I felt it was almost too over the top. And I get that... that that it's post-apocalyptic. How the fuck are you supposed to know? Maybe this is going to be tame by these by, by these standards. Um, but as we will get to when we cover Fury Road, you can see just exactly how tame it really was. But I just feel that that kind of stereotype that was really carved out in that niche that has become the post-apocalyptic style... I don't know. It it started to grate on me, especially by Thunderdome, but I still can understand that thing, that, that, that idea to that end though, you've got Mad Max. And I mean, you can see the differing angles that these people take people who try to do the right thing and people who try to create some kind of community and some kind of normalcy in a place that's just not normal anymore. Um, and you can see how one man you know, can make a difference, but at the same time has to struggle with his past in order to make his future. And there's a lot of subtle play that goes on here. And I think it's just best it it was just best played out in this film as opposed to any of the other films in this series including fury road but oh my god the action oh dude the action is so 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 good um and it you i mean this guy is literally a 70 year old walking embodiment of why we need practical effects 
in every fucking movie. And if you ever need a case study in it, just watch Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior. It's, it's just great. Now, that being said, things like... Things like the gyro captain, played by Bruce Spence. He does a good job with this character, but these characters, in their attempt to be so disparate, and in their attempt to really show the the true extremes of human nature, I think that they take it too far. And just like with Wes, who ends up being, to me, over the top, so too do these characters as a whole represent the story. And while it doesn't kill the movie, it really does hurt it. And I think it's further hurt because in that, in that vein because it becomes dated with that style of filmmaking. But the action is undeniable. The story is much better told here. And I got to give this one. Oh, I'm torn between 3.75 and 4. You know what? I'm, I'm four. Four stars for Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior. Definitely, yeah, definitely my favorite of the four films. What do you got, sir? All right. So just to remind you folks, or seven folks, that. No other movies like these came out before these movies, or at least the first movie. I mean, I'll mention it later on that the first Mad Max movie spawned all these other kind of regurgitated versions of Mad Max. But these movies created what would later become tropes, cliches, and all that stuff with like the Mohawk guy the how the characters uh how the how the bad guys act like very maniacal and really goofy and a lot of them are very like more so like bisexual than asexual and and so like people just need to need to understand that before going in because definitely more so with Thunderdome than with all these other movies i definitely started picking that stuff out only because i've seen it in all the other movie all these other movies that came out afterwards what's kind of fascinating about this movie with how fantastic the scope is with the really cool explosions and all the practical effects and the car stunts and car tricks and all that jazz. This movie was made without a split screen. There was no film playback or video assists, which for those of you who don't know, that's when like after you film a scene, you can go back and watch what you shot. Well, these guys were in the middle of the Australian outback And they couldn't do that. They didn't have that equipment because still, yes, the budget was bigger than the first Mad Max, but the budget was really, really low. They weren't getting any Warner Brothers money yet. So they didn't have all that stuff. And they weren't able to finally watch any of their dailies until like days later when they get back into the city and when they can actually, you know, watch what they shot. And luckily, they were happy with a uh, a lot of their film because it came out pretty damn spectacular especially for the day it was spectacular and i think it's kind of great how a lot of this stuff still holds up now and i think a part of it is because a lot of movies aren't made like any of these movies which is kind of like even with mad max fury road people love mad max fury road because it's different than a lot of the other movies that come out now and so it makes it a little bit more appealing they didn't have video assists So they had to rely on the director of photography 
And they also had to rely on instinct as well. Whatever their gut was telling them, if the shot turned out right or not, they either, well, did another take or they just moved on. And a lot of time they couldn't waste any film or use up too much film because of all the freaking cutting and all the different angles they had to get for the car chase scenes that they just had to stick with what they had and just hope that it turned out well. And believe it or not, it worked out. And one thing that you'll notice with this movie that the first one didn't have is that it has more of those little moments that are kind of tacked onto it. A lot of those little character moments. There are more things to to enjoy, uh, to, to, I guess, laugh at, I guess. The first movie, you had Toe Cutter, who was a really great villain, a little bit wacky, so there was some stuff to laugh about with the bad guys. But this one, some of the bad guys are goofy, but they had these little moments that were kind of special and, and, and pretty, pretty you know, well done. They were genuinely comical. For example, what they did with the dog was good. The dog had its own little personality. And as well as some of the back-and-forth dialogue, like whenever they were trying to fix an engine and the mechanic is relaying information to this really goofy Australian guy who's then relaying the information to this other guy who's then relaying the information to the leader who's hurt, you know, and just kind of like back and forth and just the, the way that they're, the way that the goofy guy is talking is really funny or speaking is really funny because the movie itself isn't hilarious, but it has more of those little comedic moments that are peppered through it, that add a little bit more humanity to the characters and the story itself. Though it is, again, based in post-apocalyptic times, there is humanity. And then more so than the first movie, this one feels more like a Western. You have the movie that is about necessity or reluctancy. Mad Max, who reluctantly becomes involved with these people that need him because... Well, for one thing, he's kind of stuck there because they have water and he wants water. They have the tools to put his car back together. So he's kind of forced into helping them out. And I think that's why this movie can stand the test of time. That's why a lot of people loved this film. Because it was a classic tale. You know, it was these are, these are themes that last forever. That's why a lot of people just love westerns. Because they don't get old. Because they're classics. And this one, like Star Wars, took on kind of the Western way of telling a good story. And as well as creating those little moments of character and humanity uh, as well. So Matt gave this one four stars. I give this one 4.5. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I highly recommend the Blu-ray for the great commentary with uh, George Miller and the DP. Right on, right on. All right, that then brings us to Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, also known simply as Mad Max 3. This one's 1985, and it stars Tina Turner, as well as Mel Gibson. Now, this is the film where, during scouting... George uh, George Miller's great friend and uh, producer, Byron Kennedy, was killed in a helicopter crash while doing location scouting for the film. Um, subsequently, his heart really wasn't in it. He has since gone on to say he doesn't even remember directing the film um, because he was just in grief mode and was simply getting through the project just to get through the project. Um, he pretty much did 
the action scenes and left most everything else to uh, George Ogilvie. And subsequently, the movie suffers from that, I think. Now, I think given the situation, I, I, they definitely made the best of um, a, a bad situation from that. But the movie definitely struggles with trying to find an identity. Now, this film has probably one of the most unique fight scenes ever, and that, of course, takes place with Max versus Blaster of the Master Blaster combo inside Thunderdome. We don't need another hero. So, you have Max, who is basically robbed by his... Uh, but by his friend Bruce Spence, the gyro captain from the second film, who's supposed to not even be there. But they couldn't cast anybody. They they were running out of time, so they were like, they call up Bruce Spence and like, hey, how would you like to play somebody who looks exactly like your character and acts a lot like your character from um, from the Road Warrior, but is not your character from the road warrior so that we can thoroughly confuse audiences when they go to see this film. And he says, sure, that sounds like a plan. So he did because I was, I I always have wondered, uh, you know, going through the film and now I, of course I did the proper research this time, but when I watched this movie, when I was like 12, I'm sitting there going, well, wait, why would the guy who helped him in the first movie, steal from him in the in the second movie that he's in. So, sorry, second and third movie, respectively. So that never makes any sense. And then they even kind of do a play on it by the end of the film when Max is running by, sees him and stops and goes, you! And then he stops and he's reading a book. Bruce Spence is reading a book, and he's like, me? <laughs> You're, you know, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I get it. I understand what they did and why they did it, but I just don't agree with it. So anyways, Bruce Spence now playing Jebediah the pilot. I'm sorry, Jedediah the pilot instead of the gyro captain. Um, steals Max's stuff and then takes it off to Barter Town, which is a town that actually has electricity because they have figured out a way to power, um, to, to produce electric power with crude methane gas from pig feces. So... That's that's the thing. Now Tina Turner is the um, anti um, oh what's her anti et, et, oh good lord Tim what's her name anti ecstasy shit anti entity thank you anti entity good lord um, who is the above ground kind of ruler she was uh, she's a self proclaimed nobody who became somebody after the apocalypse happened. And then downstairs, down in the, in the shit, as it were, is Master Blaster, who's actually in charge of generating the power. So they're kind of in this weird power struggle. Max shows up in Barter Town to try and get his stuff back. He ends up getting recruited to help Tina Turner once and for all solve the Master Blaster problem. When he is very cleverly about to win... Uh, in in terms of defeating Blaster, a a truth is revealed to him that causes him to say to 
auntie, this is not, this was not part of the deal. Thus, you know, revealing that he was actually in league and setting this whole thing up with Tina Turner, with auntie. And at the same time, kind of, you know, sacrificing himself. Once again, getting him like one step closer to reclaiming humanity. Despite the fact that he has chosen to remain on his own even after the events of the second film, which he did not have to. It then leads into a second, uh, into a second segment of the film where he stumbles across a, uh, basically the survivors of a plane crash in an oasis. And in an attempt to try and get these survivors who are children and basically think Lord of the Flies meets Peter Pan meets Mad Max, <laughs> um, you have this, these kids who envision Mad Max as their savior. And of course, he's very quick to tell them, no, <laughs> there's nothing out there but death and destruction. You guys need to stay here. Uh, which then leads into a third act of the film, where you get the actual majority of your of your uh, of your action in the film. And I love that they incorporated all of the cool stuff from the first two films, i.e., putting the big finale finish at the end, much like they did in uh, Mad Max, combined with all of the car chase elements and stuff that were so well done in Mad Max 2 but they then added the element of a of more air support also a nod to Mad Max 2 with rail which was really neat I just thought that was pretty darn spiffy that they put in rail into this and the movie then of course ends just as the two previous films have ended where Mad Max chooses to go his own way um though in a in an interesting twist, he's left. He he's he basically has to survive against Auntie, which does occur. So you've got these kind of three different miniature tales being told, and none of them really fit very well together, but. In terms of mashing, you know, taking the big heavy hammer and pounding the square peg into the round hole, they pulled it off. Um, I think this one, because they finally had gotten a better budget, they um, definitely were trying to capitalize on a whole bunch of different aspects, including Tina Turner. Uh, who did a lot of the work for the soundtrack and, of course, produced the, you know, We Don't Need Another Hero song and all that good stuff. Um, we don't need another hero. And you only have to do that 19 more times before the end of the show. Um, it, it just, it, I, I think it was, just, I, I honestly think this is this is something where all of the elements were there, but too many factors were working against the production for it to truly be successful. It's a decent film, but it Tina Turner's character is never really fully explored, and I think that I think that there was more depth there that they tried to get out, and I just think it wasn't there. Roger Ebert um, is definitely someone who really enjoyed this film. If I remember correctly, he did give it four out of four stars and was particularly 
mindful to praise the fight scene inside the Thunderdome, which is even today badass. I mean, I literally watched the movie again today, and it's fucking outstanding. But for me, where the film falls short is in its three separate tales trying to be one cohesive thing. Um, And I felt like it lost its way. Again, but the action is still really good. The fight choreography is unreal. And, I mean, it's it's literally Matrix-level shit from 1985. And that is really saying a lot. But I just cannot get over... I really, I just, I just cannot get past the disparateness of the story. So I gotta come in here at three and a quarter stars on this film. I do like this movie, um, but it was time to let it go. Yeah, this one definitely screams 1980s for sure. Um, to me, this is the more obviously dated of the bunch. Um, this one doesn't hold up as well, but there are definitely redeeming qualities to this movie. And I think the reason why this movie doesn't hold up as well as the other ones is that this one is more based on story than action itself because you had a you had a co-director along with George Miller. And obviously George Miller, I mean, you know he directed that last chase scene at the end because... Holy shit, man. I, I nobody, nobody else could have pulled that off. In fact, yeah, you can go on YouTube and watch. There's a little 25-minute making of Beyond Thunderdome, little YouTube video that was produced in 85 that's very interesting. Yeah, you can actually see George Miller directing that scene and putting all that together. And the other guy, the other George, is, uh, is mainly handling the actors. And so that's why you got a different feel for this movie. But again, you know, this one is based more on story than the action. When it shouldn't be the focus. Because these are movies that are all about the action. That's what George Miller wanted these movies to be about. All about the action. You have the basic story. I'll throw in a little story to fill, you know, fill in whatever holes or gaps there are. But it's going to be all about the action. And you have more depth to the character. You have more characters that pop up that you're you're supposed to feel for especially like the lost tribe of children at the time because this was one of the first movies that did this sort of thing outside of peter pan it obviously didn't bother people all too well because it does still you know people still love it even people who watched it when first came out still watch the movie because they remember experiencing it for the first time but since i've seen all these other movies like hook like the goonies like War of the Flies, or any other movie based on lost kids trying to find their way or whatever. I've seen a lot of this stuff before. But again, I understand this is the one that kind of helped start it all and made it, you know, popular, I guess. And I get the children are supposed to represent, the lost children are supposed to represent hope and what's left of the youth and innocence in the post-apocalyptic world, but they were relying too much on it to move the depth of the story further. You know, they were trying to use that as a device to add more depth to the character of Max Rokitansky, when you don't really need that, because the fun of the movies is not really not seeing him getting too attached 
to certain things like emotions. <laughs> so, uh, and you know, I think that was kind of a big red flag right there. Now, in order to create a great stunt, you need all those shots that lead up to the stunt to be just right. And if done right, which this movie does really well for the Thunderdome sequence and as well as the whole last third act of the movie, the illusion could be something grand. And that's what those action scenes do. That's what the last third of the, excuse me, the last act of this movie does well. That it has fantastic buildup. It's at, it's like you're witnessing the reigns of George Number Two being given to George Miller and him taking over the film for the last twenty minutes or so. Because my God, once that train rolls out of that underground cave. And that chase scene begins, man, I was on the edge of my chair. Had the volume cranked up. I was super into it. I had to watch it two more times. It was just that damn entertaining and well done. And again, this this is definitely, not only is this a very 80s movie, but it's definitely a very polished uh, movie as well. More polished than all the other threes. Therefore, it is a little too polished. I mean, I missed the grittiness and the roughness of the other small-budgeted films of the series, you know, the first two movies. And again, like I said, lastly, this is a very 80s movie with Tina Turner's theme song about Thunderdomes and children not needing another hero, and, you know, you can't forget about the saxophone that they have throughout the entire damn song, and the saxophone solo. And only those keywords about children, you know, not needing another hero and Thunderdome, you only really hear those words in a really 80s movie. And what's great is that every lyric in that song really ties into the movie somehow, even though the song really is not about the movie whatsoever. So I kind of went on a little tangent there, but it kind of added to my experience or lack thereof with the movie again until the last act of the film it's totally worth checking out definitely but you have to watch the beginning in order to get the full effect of the end this one i liked the least out of all the films i give this one 3.25 out of 5 as well right on and i did like the uh throwback of the saxophone in this film definitely you know, you, you can almost see it on Mel Gibson's face because <laughs> it's going all the way back to the first movie. So I thought that was cool. All right. So last but not least, Mad Max Fury Road, the 2015 post-apocalyptic action film out of Australia. Now, this one was directed, produced and co-written by George Miller. And... For the first outing in 30 years, this near now this one got a 150 million dollar budget. So we're done playing around with um, Australian film and American film. Nope, this is just a straight up big time movie budget. And this film is a 100 percent slap in the face to CGI. And it's interesting because the film uses CGI in like the first, say, about eight minutes and like the last four minutes. But outside of that, the CGI then virtually disappears, with the exception of guitar playing dude with his flame throwing guitar. Um, that being said, 
holy shit balls practical effects are fucking amazing and i think that's why people are just so overwhelmingly positive about this film because it is something that people literally have not seen in almost 15 years there's just no level of practical effects like you've seen. Now, I'm not saying that CGI is completely gone in all of the action scenes in the bulk of the film. Um, there are still spatters throughout, even in a lot of the chase scenes and things of that nature. But it's nowhere near the amount that people are used to seeing. And I think it's just so phenomenally mind-blowing that people are just, holy shit, this is great. Um in terms of characterizations, there is so much depth to Max and even to Imperator uh, Furiosa, played by Charlize Theron. Unfortunately, it takes... The movie's 120 minutes long, and it takes about 108 minutes to get to the depth that these characters really have. You don't truly see the struggles, the twists, the turns, until it gets to the final fight, which I guess is kind of a running theme for a George Miller film. But I think that the first eight minutes and the last four minutes, with the overabundance of CGI, really shows just how bad CGI has gotten in this day and age. And... It made, for me, it made, it bookended an amazing film in a terrible way. I did not like the first, I did not like the way the film started, and I abhorred the way that the film ended because of the CGI and because of the way that it played out. It made it difficult to follow, it made it impossible to under, to truly understand the setup, and it caused it to be confusing to the point that you that it made all of the subsequent action nearly pointless. And so by the time you finally get the narrative flow back under control, it's time to bring the movie to a close. And what do we do? We come back full circle and start using CGI again. Oh. That being said, there are still some really great nods to the original three movies. And um, this is... This is not... This is neither... I, I guess... It's really neither a reboot nor is it a true and proper sequel. Um, because it's, while it does kind of very quickly rehash the origin of Mad Max, it has definitely shown you that we are way, way past what would have, the timeline that would have occurred by the end of Thunderdome. So. It does a really good job of balancing that, which I think is which I think is key to, to trying to revitalize a franchise after thirty years, especially when you know what you're going up against. Um, there's been a lot of talk about the sexism that goes into these that goes into quite a few of the characters, um, particularly the wives of Immortan Joe, who is the supreme bad guy. Interestingly enough. Played by the same actor who played Toe Cutter in the first film. So, again, great nods to the entire franchise throughout. And I think that, and, and it's just really well done uh, in, that, in that regard. 
But I think that a lot of people who are claiming the sexism card are, in my opinion, misunderstanding the point of the characters. Uh, these are all wives, and uh, and they refer to them as breeders of this Immortan Joe, who is who is basically a despot who controls the water and controls the gasoline and everything in this one small oasis, if you will, in the desert, where he is um, trying to recreate the original human, more or less. There's tons of um, uh, birth defects and everything that are, that of course, from nuclear fallout and everything like that, which are heavily affected. He, however, does have a huge following of crazy motherfucking people who actually have to be um, blood-doped in, in order to even function. There's lots of crazy-ass drug use. He has definitely incorporated his own version of a religion, um, a Viking-style religion. And so all of these things that are very interesting uh, thoughts and discussions on, on society, on where, on where a society would be 30 or 40 years after a nuclear attack that wipes, that devastates the world. And I think that's what happens because part of the subplot is you've got uh, Tom Hardy. He's, of course, Mad Max, and he is captured by Immortan Joe's crew and in, and, and basically through a series of events is help, is um, finds himself helping Charlize Theron's character of Imperator Furiosa who has taken these wives or these breeders um, to try and get them to a new life and just basically stop the madness that is Immortan Joe. So if you've got this twisted sick fuck who does nothing but fuck people all day and create this inbred fucking society of people who are just like, you know, crazy pain, you don't, you don't think that he's going to try and like take the pretty girls and sex them up and make them sexy looking for his own perverted, twisted gains? Of course he is. That's the whole point of him being a twisted despot. So when these girls come out looking like, you know, they've just stepped out of a fucking uh, Sports Illustrated swim model suit uh, shoot in Nambia, of all places, well, I can see why people might think it's sexist, but it's, it's not. On its face, it's simply this, how, do you, how would you think that it would have played out? To all that, to to end end on all of that, it just is so incredibly frustrating to see such amazing action, almost entirely wasted by the bookended of the CGI and the way that the story sets up and then resolves itself. Um, it does come to a, it, its typical Mad Max conclusion that you've come to know and love by the time that you've you know you've seen the previous three films going in, and despite its flaws. This film, you must see this film if for nothing else than to understand how an action scene is supposed to play out. Just completely unbelievable in terms of the action. And I would recommend anybody see this film strictly for the action. But on the story notes and everything, I I just, I can't do it. Um... So I've been debating all day where I'm going to land it. Because, I mean, I walked out of the theater going, man, this was weird. 
it really was weird for me. Um, I think I'm going to, so I couldn't decide. I've been trying to go between 2.75 and 3.25 for the last three days now. So I think I'm just going to go split the difference. Three stars for Mad Max Fury Road. But you should absolutely see it for the amazing fucking action scenes. Yeah, and one thing to keep in mind, again, this movie is all about the action. And that's why he made the movie, was because it was all about the action. And this is a movie that's been in development. George Miller has been uh, made his little drawings or cartoons, as you call them, since the 90s. The early to mid-90s, he's been working on this movie. In fact, you can find some of his artwork, some of the artwork, production artwork, that came out or that was made in like 95 or 96, 97 or something like that. So he's been trying to find funding for years to make this movie, and he did. And by God, he didn't make a perfect movie, but he made a damn great movie. Because I will tell you that every big movie coming out for the rest of this year, probably the next couple years, has got to live up to this movie. Because this movie did so much right. It provided everything that, that any film goer was ever longing for within this two hour runtime. But again, you know, the movie is great, but it is not perfect. I liked the opening a lot of this movie. I loved how you get reacquainted with Mad Max without meddling too much in his backstory, which, you know, all the fans and a lot of people already know about. And, you know, of course, you you have hints about his child dying because his child plays kind of a part, a small part in the movie, just kind of like pops up in these visions i guess that kind of help him out throughout the film and so i like that a lot and honestly anything pertaining to the visual effects didn't bother me until closer to the end of the film i thought the movie opened brilliantly i love the scope of it Uh, a lot of the special effects you see is to create the citadel they had to create the scope of that And I thought, personally, it was done in a tasteful way. Until the end of the movie, where the CGI, you know, it definitely takes you out of the moment. Which kind of muffles the impact of the ending a little bit. Again, this is a western on wheels. That's a quote from George Miller. It's a western on wheels. It's one continuous chase movie with a story that could be universally understood he wanted to tell a story with very little dialogue so they didn't have to worry about too many subtitles or anything because he didn't want subtitles to tell the story and i think that's a great idea because again this transcends global waters you know it makes you feel like or it makes people feel like you know we're all watching the same movie and enjoying the same movie together it's a minimalistic film without much dialogue, but it lacked individual character moments. You know, I think Tom Hardy needed a little bit more of a personality. Yes, people are saying this is more of Furiosa's movie, kind of, sort of, but there were plenty of moments that Tom Hardy could have lightened up a little bit. And I think part of it was because they were shooting without a script. Again, George Miller draws out the movie using cartoon form and storyboard form. Because a lot of this movie is filled with car chases, it's difficult to write all that out so you have a visual representation. Like I said, this movie was shot to be one conti- like feel like it was one continuous scene, one continuous chase scene. And believe it or not, it took them 138 days to make this movie. And that is why it is difficult to make a movie 
chock full with practical effects. Yes, a lot of movies aren't going to use practical effects to this degree. <laughs> They're not. A lot of movies aren't even going to use half of the stunts they use in this movie in their film. Even in freaking James Bond movie, wouldn't even come close to using maybe you know a quarter of the stunts that are in this film. But 138 days it took them to make this movie, and I think it paid off. You know, all the time, all the dedication, and the devotion, the actors, the filmmakers, everybody put in this movie paid off. But could have used more character development, and the narrative story could have been stronger, especially with Furiosa and the group of ladies that you know she's trying to find, and the whole trying to create relatable characters with the dialogue, which really isn't there. And I'm not too sure if, if the dialogue was actually written out or if some of it was kind of ad libbed on the spot. But yes, you have fantastic bad guys. You have so many memorable moments. Just as a whole, the movie is just goddamn entertaining. And you have to see it at the movie theater. And the critics are wrong, man. I mean, this movie deserves the rating it got. It's something you will never see. It puts a lot of the more, most of the more modern movies, uh, more modern action movies to shame. And despite the faults that it has, I give this one 4.5 out of 5. And hell, man, I'm definitely going to see this one again, and I will actually own this movie. And I'll tell you right now, there is hardly ever a movie that comes out that I want to see twice at the movie theater, or that even I want to own on Blu-ray when it is released. It is that good, I highly recommend it, and I'm looking forward to the sequels. So, go see the movie, let George Miller see the money, as well as Warner Brothers, so we can get more Mad Max. 4.5 out of 5 for me. Well, there you have it, sir, and madam, and ladies and gentlemen. All of the Mad Max movies covered there. Um, just real quick, since we are way, way, way over time, I just want to say, in terms of discussing legacy and uh, of Mad Max, uh, first of all, Tom Hardy has signed on to do like four sequels to this movie. So, holy crap, we could be here a while. Um, but in terms of legacy, understand that the final scene in Mad Max literally inspired the entire Saw franchise. Just just to give you an idea. Um, Road Warrior is among the favorite films of the likes of Guillermo del Toro, David Fincher, Robert Rodriguez, James Cameron. Um, you've got people like Phil Collins who were basing videos of the day on that. Even including kids shows back in the day. Remember Rugrats? Even they do a play on Road Warrior. Uh, you've got Snoop Dogg going all the way back to Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome for, um, you know, Gang Banging 101. There's been even uh, Tupac's California Love was had the video was inspired by Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. There have been so many things that have been influenced and touched because of this that are just completely unrelated to post-apocalyptic film or just action as a whole and it is just completely undeniable that this guy that george miller is you know definitely made the right decision when he decided to step away from the doctoring and move in and move on into the filmmaking he might have been the one that would have cured cancer but by god he made a great post-apocalyptic movie <laughs> that's right you know what you know what fuck curing cancer we needed babe that's what we needed, and that's what we got. And happy feet. That's right. So, I mean, and so there you go. So even he has done other things that have been 
very well received, critically acclaimed. Babe was actually up for um, Best Picture the year that it came out, and he co-wrote that. Uh, he actually went on to write and direct Babe, Pig in the City. Uh, he did Happy Feet, as Tim just mentioned. Which he won so, the Oscar for. Yeah. So, I mean, this guy is definitely a force to behold. And so are these films. And there you have it. Did you have anything you wanted to add, sir? I think that pretty much covers it. I think I think we did a... a, a pretty good job all right well next week's movies are gonna be tomorrowland 2015's release of poltergeist the new poltergeist film and wolf cop now you might remember wolf cop we talked about this last year uh when tim had talked about uh you you went to that conference where they were trying to like the af something movie conference or whatever yeah the american film market so this is one of those movies that came from that market. It's on Netflix, so please make sure you get a chance to see that so you'll be in the know when we discuss it next week. Of course, Tomorrowland and Poltergeist are going to be in the movie theaters. So that brings us to the end of another show and to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. Alright, well the music you've been listening to for our segment intros has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. We, of course, are still the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can even follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can get inside your own super Supercharged V8 Interceptor. Get aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if you are so inclined. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Tom Hardy, I get to say this. A lot of people say I seem masculine, but I don't feel it. I feel intrinsically feminine. I'd love to be one of the boys, but I always felt a bit on the outside. Maybe my masculine qualities come from overcompensating because I'm not one of the boys. And this is Tina Turner saying, We don't need another hero. Beyond Thunderdome! Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>